Welcome back to the Yellow Box Podcast. This week, we're joined by teaching pastor Ian Simpkins as we continue the series, Big Words. For more information, please visit us online at communitychristian.org. Also, if you need prayer, we invite you to text PRAY to 630-793-6399. One of our prayer team members is standing by and ready to pray for you. Remember, you can always find us online at communityonline.tv. We hope to see you there. Hello, community. My name is Ted Canaris, and I serve as the community pastor at our Downers Grove location. Now, on behalf of all of our community pastors, I can tell you that we really miss seeing your faces in person. But I'm so grateful that we can still celebrate God together through Community Online. So thanks for joining us today. And for those of you who are new to community, let me be the first to say welcome. We are so glad that you found us online. This season hasn't been easy for any of us. So if you could use prayer for anything, don't hesitate to reach out. We're going to be continuing our series called Big Words. Last week, we explored the meaning of the word salvation. And this week, we're focusing on another big word, atonement. So let's join teaching pastor Ian Simpkins as we explore this big word together. When I think about the word atonement, it feels very heavy. That's a tough word to describe. Ooh, that's a word. I I have to go into deep thought on that one, atonement. Becoming one or the reconciliation that, hey, everything is okay again. When I think about the word atonement and the sacrifice that Jesus made, it makes me think about myself as a parent. When I look at my children, I would do absolutely anything for them. It's incredible to think that he looks at us the same way. It makes me feel like I am worth it and this whole thing is worth it and realize that this was done for me and to make use of that. Don't waste it. I think of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for me. God sent him to reconcile with us, with the sinners of the world, and it freed me. And he shed his blood for us, for all of our sins. And on that day, everything was made whole, bringing us to who he is and always will be. Everyone, welcome. I just want to first say, gosh, it is so good to be with you, but I I miss you guys. I love you guys. Normally, I would say that we are one of 11 locations, but right now, we're actually one of really thousands of locations all over the planet. So if you're watching, wherever you're watching, whenever you're watching, if you would just leave a comment below, maybe where are you watching from? And what was the best part of your week last week? Where did you see God at work? And before we dive in, I, want to, I really want to say two things. I want to say thank you. One, just simply for giving me a reason to put regular clothes on. Like this, is, this just feels great. I got my quarantine haircut from my amazing wife. But also, I just want to say thank you for being the church, for continuing to live on mission wherever you're at. The stories have been remarkable of how God has been using this church, this family in this season. And I am just so, so grateful for every single one of you. Uh, With that in mind, let me pray for us and then we'll dive right in. God, thank you for the gift of one more day to be alive, a breath in our lungs of a community that is literally global, God. Wherever we're watching from, whenever we're watching, God, would would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear? Would your spirit move in our midst wherever we are at, God? We thank you and we love you and we pray all of this in the beautiful healing name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Uh, So a question I want to begin with today is, have you ever come across something where you step back and you thought probably quietly to yourself, like, oh, that's, that's not right. 
Like for example, does anyone know anyone who's made this particular fashion decision right here? Does anyone know someone? Maybe you can leave their name in the comments. You can out them in front of everybody. This is not the right move. You look at this, you just go, oh, that's not right. Or, or maybe you can remember a time that you were maybe at a restaurant and you were waiting for your dinner and then the waiter walked by and plopped this in front of you. A well done steak. Ugh. I mean, that's, that's not right, right? Or maybe you were having a good day until a friend of yours sent you a really unfortunate text message, something that read something like this. I just bought the new Nickelback album. Oh, I mean, say it with me. One, two, three. That's not right. And I think particularly in this time of quarantine, like the opportunities for things to just not be right have increased exponentially. In fact, I saw this video online a couple days ago about a mom and she's in quarantine with her family and she thought that her, her child had gotten into some yogurt and discovered that it wasn't actually yogurt at all. Here's a little glimpse of what she experienced. So there's what she thinks is yogurt all over the house till she realizes, no, it's, it's paint. And this, this video is on mute for a reason, just all over the house. That's not right. And it's one thing to, to laugh about some of these examples, but I also think that this is a reality that all of us are living in right now. There's a lot in our world that just isn't right. Like right here in Illinois, you know, hearing the announcement that our, our schools are closed. We hear that businesses are closing. Not only are they closing, they're, they're being broken into. I just read a couple days ago that domestic violence is at the highest point it's been in over 20 years. When we look at our world right now, there's a lot that we step back at and say, man, that's not right. Now, now that may seem sort of abstract or sort of out there. So, so let's, get, let's get really personal this morning. As easy as it is sometimes to kind of point out there the things that aren't right out there, if I'm really honest, there's a lot that's not right in here. Like, to be honest, this time of quarantine has, in a lot of ways, sort of bubbled to the surface a lot of what's not right in my heart. I've flown off the handle. I've lashed out. I've said things that I, I regret. Can anyone relate to that this morning? That The problem isn't just simply out there. There's a lot in me that's not right in here. And I think we all have a sense that something isn't right both out there and also in here. Well, at, at the center of the Christian faith is this scandalous idea that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is God's way of putting everything right. And it's this big theological word called atonement. So we're in week two, actually, of this series called Big Words. And last week, we talked about this word salvation. And the idea that salvation isn't just simply a reality for some time in the future. It's the key to understanding, like, life to the full right here and now. And so today, the topic, the word that I want to unpack a little bit is a word, honestly, that theologians and scholars have debated about for centuries. Atonement essentially asks this question here. How did Jesus' death on the cross make things right? Has anyone ever wondered that? I don't think you need to even be a Jesus person to wonder, how does that actually work? When we look at the cross, we're looking at something significant. Regardless of your persuasion or your background, we're looking at something important. We're looking at the turning point of history. Something happened when Jesus of Nazareth 
was crucified that day. Now, to just be really clear, the goal of today is not to sort of end with this like airtight understanding, okay? Like we are still gonna be caught up in sort of this mystery space. There will always be mystery. But what I wanna do is, is to kind of jump into the deep end for a little bit. And, and here's what I realize. Um, some of you are gonna love the next, you know, 24.7 minutes. Others of you, uh, hang on for dear life, but, but stick with me because I, I think what we're talking about today is absolutely transformative in understanding how God makes things right. So from the earliest days of Christianity, there's always been this sense that something wasn't right with the world. If you feel that today, please know that you're not alone, not only right now, but throughout the course of history, there's always been this sense that something wasn't right and that Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and even his incarnation is a part of the solution somehow. And they've created what we call atonement theories to try to explain, to try to understand how. How does Jesus actually make things right? Each theory articulates a problem and then how Jesus solves them. So today there are probably seven or eight main theories of atonement and we do not have time to dive into all eight. So I wanna unpack Maybe the three most dominant. Here's the first view. The first theory is called Christus Victor. Christus Victor. Now, the, the basic problem is that you and I have turned away from God. And this really, it started in the garden with Adam and Eve. That's where it began in what we call the fall. And we've surrendered our place as God's rulers in the world to the devil. And so since we've surrendered our place as rulers to the devil, we're enslaved to evil, to sin, to death, we're ensnared and we're held captive under the power of sin. So, so the basic insight of this theory then is that Christ has won the victory for us. Here's how that works. Jesus comes, he identifies with us. He lives fully God, fully man, and he trades his life as what we would call a ransom for the devil. Some have explained it sort of like, like bait on a hook. This is sort of Jesus tricking Satan. So Jesus comes, lives as a human, tricks the devil. He dies, but the devil can't contain him. And since the devil already let humanity free, well, Jesus wins. God wins. Humanity wins. Now, one passage that's often used in support of this theory comes from uh, Hebrews chapter two, and here's what it reads. So since the children are made of flesh and blood, it's logical that the Savior took on flesh and blood in order to rescue them by his death. By embracing death, taking it into himself, he destroyed the devil's hold on death and freed all who cower through life, scared to death of death. That, that's the general principle, the general idea behind Christus Victor. And, and here's the thing, Christus Victor was like the predominant view for like the first thousand years of Christianity. Everyone really kind of subscribed to this one particular belief until a guy named Anselm of Canterbury comes along and he articulates an understanding of atonement that is just a little bit different called the satisfaction view of atonement. So theory number two is the satisfaction view of atonement. So Anselm says that here's the basic problem. The basic problem is that we have defrauded God of the honor that is due to him. We've defrauded God of the honor that he deserves. And so as a result, there's this huge debt that we can't pay, but Christ's obedience pays that debt. It restores God's honor. It satisfies God's honor. So here's, here's Anselm's basic argument. Um, 
if you and I as commoners, I accidentally kill one of your sheep, well, not only have I taken from you a sheep, but I've, I've also offended your honor. But thankfully, I have other sheep. So I can repay the debt, give you one of my sheep, and not only is the payment of the sheep given, but your honor is restored. But then if I, just as a commoner, accidentally kill one of the king's sheep, well, that's a different conversation altogether because the king's honor is, is far greater than my own, so I can't, it's not just a one for one. How many sheep would it take to satisfy the king's honor? 10, 50, 100? Anselm's basic premise here is that that's still possible. It's still possible to round up 50 sheep or 100 sheep to satisfy that particular debt. I can still pay it. It might, still, it might just cost me a few more sheep. Now, God is greater than any earthly king. Anselm says that our sin is like an affront to his honor. We have a debt before an infinite God. So how many lambs do you think it would take to satisfy an infinite God. Anselm says that an infinite number because God is infinite. Because God is infinite, the need for, for justification, the need for that honor to be restored is an infinite number. Only an infinite God can make an infinite payment to satisfy an infinite death. That's where Jesus comes in. So maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, why, why doesn't God just write himself a check, right? A person has to pay for it to honor God because humanity is the one that incurred the debt. So Jesus... The infinite word of God becomes human and gives the ultimate gift. His obedience all the way to death on a cross, which pays the debt of sin. And he doesn't just pay the bare minimum, by the way. He gives a surplus. There's a surplus for everyone's deficit. One passage that's often used to describe this theory comes from the book of Colossians. It says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So, so that is Anselm's basic theory and argument of satisfaction. Which brings us to theory number three. Penal substitution theory. So about 500 years later comes this little thing called the Protestant Reformation. So Protestants will take Anselm's understanding and they'll focus less on divine offense and they'll focus a whole lot more on what we call divine justice. Because of our sin, we have broken God's law and therefore God's righteousness. Many of you perhaps have heard a version of this in your own upbringing. God's righteousness demands punishment for human sin. That means every human deserves God's punishment for their sins because God is just. It would be unjust if he didn't punish injustice. So God, in his grace, in his love and his mercy, supplies the one to be punished. God, in Jesus, takes the punishment for sinful humanity on himself. Jesus doesn't just simply pay the honor, he pays the penalty for sin. In fact, the Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter three. He says, since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners, both us and them, and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us, God did it for us. 
Out of sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself, a pure gift. He got us out of the mess that we're in and restored us to where he always wanted us to be. And he did it by means of Jesus Christ. So he's recognizing there's this mess. And I think many of us can agree to some degree at some cosmic level, we've contributed to the mess, right? Cornelius planning a call sin, the culpable disturbance of shalom. Shalom being the way things were intended to be. We've participated in that, but Paul goes on. He says, God sacrificed Jesus on the altar of the world to clear that world of sin. Having faith in him sets us in the clear. God decided on this course of action in full view of the public to set the world in the clear with himself through the sacrifice of Jesus, finally taking care of their sins that he had so patiently endured. This is not only clear, but it's now. This is current history. God sets things right. He also makes it possible for us to live in his rightness. So that, in general there, is a quick summary of what penal substitution is trying to get. In a lot of ways, this theory has become the predominant view, not necessarily globally, but certainly here in the West. So the question that I imagine is probably on a lot of our minds at this point is, so which one is it, right? You just said a lot of words, Ian. Just tell me which one is it, which one is Right, which theory fully encapsulates what this big word atonement actually means, which I think is a great question, which is exactly why we asked a very brilliant, very smart friend of community to answer that question himself. Take a look. Hey everyone, so I'm joined by author and professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary, Scott McKnight, also the author of a community called Atonement. And Scott, thank you so much for having this conversation with us today. I really appreciate it. Well, it's great to be with you and good to be with your church. I'm, I'm, I'm honored. I really, really appreciate that. I'm, I'm wondering, as a theologian, how do you wrestle with the various different theories of atonement and how different so many of them seem to be? Well, I think the first thing that we ought to consider is the fact that the cross of Jesus is so magnificent Hmm. and its impact so far-reaching that no one expression or term satisfied the early church. Hmm. So they saw so many things happening as a result of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Is that forgives sins, it justifies us before God, it reconciles us with God, reconciles us with other people, it cures problems, it heals problems. Uh, There's just one direction after another. Mm. It solved our sin problem, it solved the justice problem, all these things come into play. So I want to magnify the significance of the cross and simply say that there's no one term or one image or one expression Mm -hmm. that captures it all. Well, and in your book, you actually use the analogy of a golf club or really a collection of golf clubs. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I grew up playing golf and uh, played a lot, uh, used different clubs over times, bought different sets. But one day I went out to a golf course by myself. They assigned me to some guy who was already on the tee box for hole number one. Hmm. I get up there and the guy's got no golf bag and he's got a club in his hand Hmm. 
<laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, I've got 14 in my bag, and this guy's got one. Now, what's going on here? Right. He says, um, oh, he says, I think all these golf clubs are a waste of time. He said, I, I have one, and I adjust it. Well, I had played, and I had played enough golf to know that different clubs do different things in different ways. But as I got to thinking about that, I thought, when we are in different situations, I'm 150 yards from the green, I want to use a seven iron, and we call it knocking it down so that I can get some spin on it, but I can control the distance better. Hmm. Uh, if I tried to pull out a, a three iron and try to knock it down, it, I'd be all over the place. Hmm. And it makes me think about the atonement. And that is, uh, when the problem is our sinfulness, we want to be forgiven. Hmm. When the problem is guilt, we want to be made right. Hmm. When the problem is sickness or disease, we want to be cured. When the problem is that we're out of sorts with God, we want to be reconciled. Well, all those terms are used in the New Testament. But just think, if the only term we had to use was justified. Hmm. justification. Well, there's a lot of people who whose relationship with God and others is not simply one that needs justification, but needs reconciliation. A different, uh, let's say, a different club in the atonement game hmm. will speak to different people in different ways at different times. I'm grateful to God for all the images, because over the years, I've resonated in different ways with different ones. And I've met many people who've resonated with different images of atonement at different ways, hmm. in different ways at different times in their life. That's so good. I'm wondering what word of encouragement then would you give to someone either A, who has never heard an analogy quite like this before, this is all kind of new information to them, or B, they've really only maybe held on to one club, one analogy for most of their life. What, what encouragement would you, would you give to someone in either of those spaces? I would encourage people to read the Bible to see how it addresses the human problem and human problems and all the remedies that go back to redemption in Christ, the grace of God, the power of the Spirit, if we are open to the Spirit, and how all of these work together to heal us so that we might become the kind of people that God wants us to become. All right. So let me ask you a question then that is maybe, maybe an impossible question to even really answer. What, what, what actually happened at the cross? We just celebrated Easter Resurrection Sunday. A question I feel like I get as a pastor a lot is, why, why did Jesus have to die? What, what actually happened in that moment? Well, let's remember this. He died. <laughs> Death is the big game that is played in the Bible. Hmm. Death is overcome by life. That's what happens on Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter. Death is not the final word. The final word is life. It was the death of deaths. So that new life might come.
Dr. McKnight, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us. Personally, you have influenced my theology more than almost anyone in our church as a whole is so grateful for your friendship and your influence and your leadership. Thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ian. Good to be with you. See, now each of these clubs is useful in different ways, but they're all pointed at the same target. To, to use only one of these clubs would be to miss out on the rich array of pictures that the Bible gives us. It's like being inside a house and trying to see the entire sky through just one window. Now, unfortunately, though, the view that's been predominant here in the West for a lot of people is this idea that God is predominantly angry, vengeful, and punitive. Maybe you were given that version of God at some point in your life. The predominant view, unfortunately, has depicted God in this way. And if you're there today, I'm sorry. In fact, I love the way that scholar and author N.T. Wright puts it. Here's what he says. Says the idea that there's this big angry God who is cross with us all and is about to lash out, but fortunately someone gets in the way who happens to be his son Jesus and phew, that's the version a lot of us were handed. Oh, thank, thank goodness Jesus got in the way of big angry God, but listen to how N.T. Wright continues. He says, in essence, when atonement is explained this way, we have taken John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and what people have heard is God so hated the world that he killed his only son. When you say that in a world where there was abuse, people think, I know that kind of bully and I don't want anything to do with him and things go horribly wrong. Maybe you were handed that version of God, that version of Christianity. And I just wanna simply say this morning that I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I've worn the weight of that as well. I've lost count, honestly, of how many times People have sat over coffee in my office and wept with this understanding, this depiction. Is that really who God is? But take heart, friends. Take heart because there is good news. In fact, here at Community, here's what we believe actually happened here at the cross. Simply put, it is the sovereign act of love on behalf of the Father himself. The death of Jesus reveals not the anger of God, but the love of God. In fact, the Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5. He says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says, he, he gives us a demonstration. He, here's how you see it. Here's how you know it. Here's how you experience it. Christ died for us. In fact, I was talking with the professor friend this week, trying to kind of get my head around this topic. And he said, any picture of God that is in any way angrier than the picture of the father and the prodigal son is woefully inadequate. In the depiction of the prodigal son, the son is a, a long way off and the father runs after him. He doesn't say, oh, hold on, I, I gotta go kill a servant real quick before I can welcome my son back. He runs to him, throws him a party, kisses him, embraces him. The justice that God is committed to is restorative, not punitive. Jesus did not come to change God's mind about us. In fact, I think he came to change our mind about God. I sincerely believe that if we caught a real glimpse of just how much God loves us, I believe that it would transform every burden that we carry, every grief that we bear right here and now, if we could just get a glimpse 
of the depth of how much our Father loves us and pursues us and is coming after us. And the Father didn't send someone else to do the dirty work. God didn't send someone else. He does it himself. God says, I love you so much. I'm coming to do it myself. It's God himself on that cross. That is the depth of love that God has for us. In fact, I love the way that Pastor Brian Zahn puts it. He says this. He says, what is revealed on Good Friday is the depth of human depravity and the greater depths of God's love. The crucifixion is not what God inflicts upon Jesus in order to forgive. The crucifixion is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. As long as we think Jesus died for God instead of dying for us, we will never see the sinfulness of human civilization and the beauty of the divine alternative, the kingdom of God. At the cross, we we discover how God has always been. In Jesus, the full revelation of the mercy of God. We have not always known how God acts or who he is, but in Christ we do, we discover that he would rather die for his enemies than kill them. God absorbs sin and he recycles it into forgiveness, into mercy, into grace and new life. It's not what God inflicts on Christ in order to forgive, it's what God endures as he forgives. And here's the scandal of the whole thing. God both created humanity, but he also weeps with the parts that are broken. And when we step back and say, that's not right, that's not right, whatever in your life feels broken, feels like it's not right, the Bible says God enters into our brokenness, that he is near the brokenhearted, that he weeps with us in our pain. He sees this brokenness, he enters into it, he becomes our humanity and is actively at work to redeem broken humanity. Let's, let's just be honest. When we look around in the world, there's a lot that's not right. There's a lot that's broken. But the atoning work of Jesus inaugurated the work of making all things right. And not just in some sort of distant, ethereal, nebulous sense. He makes me right. Restoring the toxic, broken parts of my heart. He makes us right. Healing the stuff that divides us. He makes the world right. Repairing the systems and structures that contribute to evil and injustice. It is this rightness of Jesus that is the already not yet kingdom of God. And he invites us to participate in it. God invites us to join him in the work of making all things right. This is the invitation of the kingdom of God. Not just just hold on here on planet earth till we go to heaven when we die but to be the hands and feet wherever we're at to bring about this rightness while we partner with God in this broken world. He promises us that there will come a day when everything is actually made right, when everything is restored to God's original dream. In fact, in closing, I'd like to read from the book of Revelation. And wherever you're at, I want you just to sit back in your chair or put down the phone or whatever multitasking you're doing, I want you just to simply hear these words from Revelation chapter 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. What a promise that is, that we don't have anything to fear because God is always with us. Heaven come to earth, God dwelling with his people. And here's how it ends. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That is the scandal of the cross. That's the promise of new life found in Jesus in you and I. We get to be participants in this beautiful mystery of God making everything right. Would you pray with me, please? God, thank you that you love us with that kind of love. And God, if we've never known that, would your spirit move and redeem and restore in ways that only you can, God? For every person listening or watching, would you overwhelm them right now with a sense of your presence and love for them, God? Help us to even just get a glimpse of the depths of love that you have for us, God. Help us to carry that out, to be agents of restoration and reconciliation, God, wherever we are. We thank you and we love you. And we're so grateful, God, that you keep coming after us. We pray all of this in the beautiful, holy, healing name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen.